Welcome to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. If you enjoy the show, you can keep up with all the latest episodes by giving Cognitive Revolution a follow or a rating. I'd really appreciate it, as it really helps to grow the show. And if you have any questions or thoughts, or just want to drop me a line for any reason, feel free to shoot me an email at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com. My guest today is a Belgian big shot. I worked in his lab for a few months after undergrad, which I suppose is an accurate way to put it if you're willing to use the word work rather liberally. But regardless of that, I found him very compelling as a person, and so I was excited to talk to him for this interview. His titles include many French phrases, which would be rather embarrassing if I were to try to give them a go. Um, but he is a professor of cognitive science at the Free University of Brussels, the French one. And uh, his research focuses on implicit learning when he's feeling modest and the great enigma of consciousness when he's feeling rather ambitious. Hailing from the fabulous castle-speckled land of traditional fermentation methods that is Belgium, this is Axel Claremont. All right, so Axel, uh, I'd love to start off by just saying uh, there's there's a lot of academics out there who you kind of look at their... Uh, so they're very successful, but you, but you, you look at their lives and... Uh, Sometimes you think like, well, I don't know if that's really the kind of thing that I want to live. But, you know, the, the first thing that stuck out uh, to me about you was, damn, here's a guy who has it going on. Uh, you really have the appearance of enjoying life, uh, even if that, you know, mainly is work. And I, I just appreciate uh, how you balance. You, you really prioritize what you're interested in and you build your life around that. And that's something that I've really looked up to since I first uh, met you and uh, something I strive to implant in my own life. So thanks for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Absolutely. Uh, awesome. So why don't, so just so we can get a sense of what you do, why don't you uh, tell us what your average day looks like? My average day? Um, yeah, well, um, I sp you know, you talk about work-life balance. Um, I think my family would disagree a little bit with that. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a lot of work involved, but um, a typical day, I don't know, I wake up at, um, uh, at 7 uh, or so. Or I tend to wake up earlier these days. Uh, I used to be, when I was your age, I guess, I was a real night bird. I would go to bed at... I don't know, four and work uh, until then and then wake up at noon and then uh, uh, but then I had uh, my daughters and uh, that generated um, a solid 12 or 15 years of driving them to school every day at seven. I think that uh, sort of progressively shifted my circadian clock a little bit. Um, and so now, yeah, I wake up at seven, I have breakfast, then I come to the office, and then uh, I live very close to uh, my office, so it feels like going to the backyard a little bit. Um, that means that uh, if there's nothing going on, I go home and have lunch at home, and then work a bit more till, I don't know, five, six, seven, sometimes a bit later, and then, um, and then that's it. That's it. I don't feel like working at uh, in the evening anymore. Uh, yeah. That really, yeah, uh, I have a hard time doing that now. Uh, it used it used not to be the case. 
Uh, so the best days in the weeks for me are Saturday and Sunday because unless there's something else going on, I come here, but then there's no one else or almost no one else, and uh, then I have time to focus on the stuff that you know, never manage to do because you're interrupted by meetings or podcasts or other stuff. <laughs> Naturally. Do you, uh, so do you spend most of the, w the weekdays working with students then on the projects they're working on and, and all that sort of stuff? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a little bit of everything, right? There's meetings with uh, students. There's um, just working, reading, writing, uh, what academics do, I guess. Uh, uh, and then there's um, a lot of admin sometimes. Um, sometimes um, trips. I travel quite a bit. Uh, here and there, meetings or, you know, thesis, vivas or, uh, I don't know, other stuff that requires coordination between different people. So one thing that I'd love to talk about a little bit is that you have this uh, amazing sort of background of your PhD training, which is that, so uh, Jay McClellan publishes Paradigm Defining Book, Distributed Parallel Processing in 1986 and you started working for him around that time when that started happening. Uh, so how, how did you, when did you start working for him? Um, we moved to the States um, in 87 and we stayed there until 91, the time of my PhD, yeah. Yeah, so how... Uh, was there any precedent in your life to, uh, to, to to do something like that? How did you get that opportunity? Well, um, I don't know how it came about, really. I just felt we, we got in touch with this, um, or we, we became aware of this foundation called the Belgian American Educational Foundation, uh, which is this great foundation that has uh, supported uh, students from Belgium going to the States or from the States coming to Belgium. But uh, of course, you know, the flow is more in the uh, Belgium to US direction. Uh, Americans who come here, they want to study the, uh, the art of um, um, musical bells in Bruges and, uh, you know, the, the 13th century or something like that, or manuscripts, it's, it's a more restricted uh, field. But so I don't know how the idea uh, came about to actually uh, sort of do that. But uh, at the time, I was very much interested in implicit learning, what we can do without awareness, what we can learn about without awareness. Um, and there just didn't seem to be any sort of theoretical framework that would even sort of um, coherently accommodate the idea that uh, learning could proceed in the absence of awareness. Uh, at the time, cognitive psychology in that domain was dominated by the work of Newell and Simon and traditional artificial intelligence. And uh, when you looked at that, it all felt uh, everything preceded by hypothesis testing, basically. But hypothesis testing is something I think of as a conscious uh, process. So the phenomena of implicit learning were hard to reconcile with those ideas. And then, indeed, uh, Hinton's paper uh, come out, comes out, and um, there's all this great discussion everywhere in cognitive psychology about how connectionism is changing the paradigm. 
um, taking inspiration from how the brain does things uh, versus um, sort of computers. Um, which was the uh, dominant um, metaphor for information processing at the time. And so I get in contact with that work and I get really excited because at the time I was also very much interested in AI and artificial intelligence and uh, computer simulation and stuff like that. And so I realized that, um, yeah, it would be incredible to, uh, to actually sort of get a chance to work with, uh, with the people who are, who are doing that at the time. And then I have this flashbulb memory of uh, sort of looking at um, US programs uh, for PhD and masters and, uh, and then this was taking place, this is 86 in Brussels, right on, this was taking place um, on microfilm. So I was sitting in front of a microfilm viewing machine uh, browsing through um, microfilmed uh, archives of um, PhD programs in different uh, American universities. And I get to CMU, Carnegie Mellon, and I see the head of Simon sort of going up on the screen as I scroll. And then I see the head of Newell, the two founders of um, AI. And then it just goes on and on. Uh, everybody is at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, Jay McLennan is at CMU. Uh, John Anderson is at CMU. Uh, and man, many other people. And so, uh, you know, I, I instantly knew that is where I wanted to go. And it turned out to be successful. It took a little bit of convincing uh, of Jay to let me to let me be his PhD student. I started out with um, Lynn Reeder, John Anderson's wife, working on memory, but um, my goal was really to work with, uh, with Jay, and so eventually that became uh, sort of possible, and that's how it happened. So you didn't um, target him uh, specifically until you were on the ground at Carnegie? Yeah, I, I did, but uh, he was very busy. The books had just come out. He, was, uh, he wasn't ready to... And he, 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 I never managed to actually get him interested in consciousness or implicit learning uh, to a large extent. He, he got excited uh, when, when I did the work that led to my first paper in JP General. Uh, but uh, it, it, yeah, it took a lot of convincing. He was more interested in language and concepts and semantics and, and things like that, which uh, I wasn't really interested in uh, at the so, time. So yeah, it took a um, it took a convergence of interests and and some convincing uh, to uh, make him realize that this was actually interesting work. Yeah, what did you say to him to get him on board with uh, taking you on as a student and to approach some of the problems that you thought were really important? Um, I, it, you know, it, it began uh, working with David Sovin Schreiber there, and we, followed, we were following the uh, PDP course Jay was teaching, and then uh, as part of that course there were um, exercises to um, carry out and projects to complete and stuff like that, and so we decided to... Um, uh, work with uh, Jeff Elman's simple recurrent network, which was a sort of primitive, so to speak, version of uh, predictive processing, the idea that um, uh, connectionist networks could be um, uh, sort of um, trained to predict future events uh, as opposed to simply processing 
uh, current events. Uh, that was the core of this uh, network that Jeff Ehrman, the uh, UCSD linguist who is now deceased, unfortunately, had introduced shortly before we were following that class. And so uh, when I saw that, uh, me and a number of uh, other people had the idea of using this in order to capture the empirical phenomena around implicit grammar learning. Um, whereby you become sensitive to the um, a sort of uh, grammatical structure of nonsensical strings uh, sufficiently that you can sort of decide then which new strings are grammatical or not, even though you can't really verbalize the uh, rules of the grammar. Uh, and so the network was, so we did a simulation of that uh, using this network and it turned out to be terrific, it turned out to be great really interesting uh and so that is what convinced jay uh i guess when he saw that we had done that and how nicely connected it was with the work of jeff ellman which was at the time very innovative um he got excited about it then i think that's really cool because so many phd students think the whole process is to try and shove their interests into the box of their advisors present interests and uh, to see what you did there, which is take someone who clearly had well-defined interests and do the groundwork to expand uh, their interests to, to sort of mold to yours is, I think, really inspiring. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, that's cool. That's, that's what I'm, I think, you know, I mean, it always has to come from the students. That's the way I, I work with my own PhD students. It's always uh, sort of... Um, uh, it always begins with the people, you know, if I like the person or not, and I, if I think he or she is uh, uh, sort of smart and motivated, and uh, and if I like them, and if, if I do like them, then it becomes a sort of negotiation of uh, yeah. uh, what we're going to do. But uh, I have a lot of respect for people's own interests. In fact, I'm looking for people who, who can be intrinsically motivated to... to and who have a uh, project of their own, uh, basically. And then, okay, we talk about, uh, I guess, a little bit like, indeed, what happened with, uh, with Jay. We talk a little bit about how to uh, have a sufficient overlap uh, that I have something to say about what they're doing. Um, and that, you know, I find it interesting myself. Otherwise, uh, it's, of course, a little bit difficult, even though uh, I might like the, the person. Uh, and then we, we proceed from there. But I, I think it really has to begin with your own project as a PhD student. You have to be sort of um, truly fascinated by a problem. Uh, and then your advisor advises. Uh, he, tells, he tells you what he thinks is the best way to proceed. Yeah. So, you know, what, I, uh, what really stands out to me about your story is that you were able to identify i mean in retrospect it's completely genius right you were uh in the game early on with neural networks when they have gone on to have the huge huge industry that they have now uh but you you chose uh, a place with herb simon alan newell uh, jay mcclellan like you were saying all these big shots and not only that you are from what i imagine is probably a pretty non-standard background there it's not like you grew up 
in the neighborhood or, you know, like you were at Stanford before that or something like that. So it was an easy transition. What do you think it is about your personality that allowed you to have that vision to put yourself in the right place at the right time and to go out, you know, presumably out of your comfort zone to actually be able to to make that happen? Um, yeah, what can I say? Um, I don't know. At the time, uh, the only thing that mattered would be, was to, to do something that, um, felt to me important, uh, felt like it was contributing something to something. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so I had a, I had it in mind to pursue a sort of intellectual career to do research to do research. You know, that that that, that is really what I wanted to do. And uh, of course, this was possible uh, here in Belgium. But then going to the states and you know meeting these these incredible big shots, as you said, that felt so exciting. That just felt like a terrific opportunity. Um, and in fact, coming back. Uh, it was a very difficult decision, um, but at the time the uh, academic system in Belgium was set up so that um, you had to sort of get in from the bottom and then work your way up the ladders of the uh, academic hierarchy. Uh, it was not the case that uh, universities here would hire professors, for instance, or uh, even postdocs that were not from here, basically. Um, and so that has completely changed now, of course, uh, with, you know, uh, this is another debate. I think there's good reasons and bad reasons to um, uh, sort of favor external candidates. But uh, in 91, it felt like uh, if we were to stay over there uh, in the States, it would basically mean exile from uh, Belgian academia. And that was that was just too much. We just had our first daughter at the time, and so the, and and I had the uh, almost guaranteed um, idea of um, having a um, permanent position here with this, you know, really good background coming from CMU. Um, I had just signed a contract for this book that came out of my thesis with MIT Press at the time. Uh, so it all felt good, so I was very confident I would find a, uh, a sort of early permanent position here. Uh, and so the difference was, okay, on the one hand, continue this exciting trip uh, in American academia, um, but with postdocs basically, and this daughter we just had, and no family, and uh, no support of any kind, and uh, with a, a sort of long-term prospect that uh, was basically exiled from Belgium, or the prospect of coming back here with a permanent position, and the possibility of returning to the States or uh, anywhere else uh, later on. So that's what we chose. Did you toy with the idea of, of applying to jobs in the U.S.? Yeah, I did, actually. Uh, but there was a glut of connectionist people at the time. So my best possibility was a postdoc at UCSD, I think. Well, you could do a lot worse than uh, taking your family down to San Diego, but... Uh... Yeah, I didn't like it that much, though. It, uh, <laughs> I spent three months over there. Yeah. yeah. So, the uh, did you... When you went back to Belgium, was it initially at ULB? 
Yeah. Um, and now you've grown into this big figure there. What's it? What's it like to, you know, it, it, now you're the big shot at the same institution where you went for undergraduate and you spent most so much of your career there. What has that been like to really have that sort of intellectual home there? Um, that's great. I love the uh, uh, university. Uh, I think it's um, it's a great institution. It doesn't have a lot of funding, but it has a lot of dedicated people uh, who value the institution for what it is, uh, and it has a sort of very strong free free thought. Uh, sort of identity. It was founded by liberal minds and Freemasons in Brussels back then, uh, in 1834, I think. Uh, and so that spirit is, is very much alive here. And I, I feel that um, despite the uh, sort of, um, you know, funding limitations, uh, I've I've always been successful getting money, including from European Research Council and other big sources of money. Uh, but I've also felt that I've had a lot of freedom here uh, uh, with very few teaching requirements and, um, and, and a, lot of, um, yeah, a lot of freedom, which is, which is great, I think. It's exactly what I wanted. Have you ever thought about uh, Looking back on that decision, if you had made a different decision, what do you think would have been different about it? Do you think you ever? Do you think you really would have been exiled from Belgium, uh, in in that sense, in that that career sense, or do you think you? Yeah, for a long while. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, with ifs, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I have no idea. Who knows? Um, it's all about the people you meet. So probably I would have met more sort of um, interesting, challenging people uh, had I stayed there. Uh, probably I would have, you know, had the means of setting up a larger center or... But I, I was never really interested in that either, you know. I don't need a big center around me. It just so happens that uh, now I'm sort of heading this uh, Neuroscience Institute, but... Uh, this is more like the role of a DJ than the role of a director or anything like that. And uh, I'm, I'm not a power person at all. Uh, I want to be left alone so I can do my best doing what I think I do sufficiently well, which is write and do interesting research. Uh, but it's mostly, you know, it's mostly, uh, I don't need a big structure around me. And I felt that I've always had sufficient funding to work at the level that I think I'm capable of, basically. So um, there's no regrets there in terms of, but who knows, you know, who knows? Um, um, yeah, who knows? Well, I think that's a really beautiful example because you you, you really, in a sense, you got the, boast, the best of both worlds, which is that you went out and you were part of the, the massive movement that was taking place. And then you looked at your options and decided that where your life was best invested was at home. And that, uh, I think, has borne so much fruit for you in your, in your career. And I think that that's uh, a balance people often have a hard time striking in life. And I think you've absolutely nailed it there. So. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, as I said, there was no regrets. Yeah. 
So going back to CMU though, I'm kind of interested. What what were Herb Simon and uh, Alan Newell like? Oh, there were uh, Newell. I I sort of um, knew a little bit less than Simon, but Simon I would meet in uh, in the toilets on Sundays, and he uh-huh. would always <laughs> he would always you know we'd we'd be there being him and me and. Uh, He'd go, oh, you're a PhD student of Jim McClelland. Oh, yeah, it's good to see your PhD students work on Sundays. Uh, I like that. And so we had these little chats, and then I followed, on the advice of Jay, the course he was teaching. Uh, He was a wonderful person. He was a great figure, uh, very uh, inspirational, and and of course a a massive, massive... um, uh, authority in the field. I mean, it's not for uh, nothing that he ended up getting the Nobel Prize. Um, but so, yeah, it was great. Uh, it was great. And he was, of course, extremely good at describing his own ideas and the principles upon which he based his uh, entire career. Um, but it, yeah, he, he was also sort of looking very skeptically at connectionism and all of that. Uh, so it was the atmosphere was great because one 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 half of the hallway Baker Hall was uh, people you know carrying the the flag of this revolution going on and the other half were um, people who had a different idea about what the best sort of uh, information processing models of human cognition uh, would be like. Uh, so there, there were great interesting discussions. Um, between, say, you know, the students of John Anderson and the students of Jay McClelland uh, at some point in time. Um, it was great. It was incredibly stimulating. Another thing I'm interested in is, uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't imagine there were lots of other Belgians there at the time at Carnegie Mellon. And I'm wondering if that, if you ever felt like an outsider uh, I suspect that you took on the role of the quintessentially cool European, but how did that sort of difference in identity and background play out for you? It was fine. It was really fine. Uh, there were a couple of Belgians at CMU, and uh, I remember all the Americans laughing about us because we would speak English, because most of them would be from Flanders, and my Dutch wasn't good enough. Um, at the time that I could have a fluent conversation in Dutch, uh, so we would speak English, and they would they would go like, "What is English to your language you speak in Belgium?" I says, "No, no, no, it's more complicated than that." Um, but also, we, um, you know, I think it was the first year Carnegie Mellon sort of had a glut of uh, PhD positions available. It was like seven or so, whereas traditionally they would only take one or two people. And I was also coming with my own funding, so it was an attractive proposition for them. You know, uh, uh, here's a good foreign student, uh, he's got his money, so let him come, you know, what's the cost, uh, eventually. Um, So there was that, and then uh, there was an expat community, uh, as we would say now at the time. In particular, there was a uh, French family. Uh, the servant Schreiber's, uh, Jean-Jacques Servant Schreiber, uh, uh, who died a few years ago now, uh, was the author of uh, Le Défi Américain, a book about how France and Europe should take inspiration from what was going on in the States under Kennedy in this, you know, 60s older period. 
Um, and then he also founded uh, L'Express, which was a uh, sort of the first European newspaper or weekly uh, modeled after Newsweek and or, or Time magazine. Um, and he ended up at CMU at some point with his four sons, uh, David, Emile, uh, Edouard, and Franklin. Uh, and they were living in this big house over there. Um, and uh, Emile was a student in the psychology department, so I would see him every day. And they were all from Paris. Um, and so and I worked with David. Uh, one of my first, uh, well, this first uh, string of uh, papers was with uh, David Sovereign Schreiber. And so it was great. Uh, this was home away from home. Uh, those people shared our European culture. And so um, it never really felt like uh, we were the only weirdos uh, out there. In fact, uh, we were part of this uh, uh, really cool community uh, with them. Uh, but then also I made really good American friends over there. The PhD students were just great uh, wherever they were coming from. So um, it was wonderful. But it, it, you're right, it was mostly American people. That's really nice. So um, I want to change gears here a little bit uh, and for a few minutes talk about so your most direct interest is in consciousness. And, I, and I'm curious, when did you get interested in that? It sounds like there was an inkling of that even before you went to CMU. Um, but what, how, how has that interest played out for you? Well, uh, yeah, as I said, before going to CMU, I was interested in implicit learning. Um, so what is it that we can learn without awareness? Um, and that was a field called implicit learning with a small community. Uh, some, some people still work on that or would identify that as a uh, domain uh, today, but it has become a little bit smaller. And one of the reasons for that is that it sort of got sucked up in the whole um, boom uh, into uh, consciousness that began uh, for me in 1996, uh, so um, um, this was, um, yeah, five, five or six years after uh, I was done with my PhD. Um, and um, there was a meeting in Claremont College um, in California uh, titled uh, uh, the first meeting of the Association uh, for the Scientific Study of Consciousness, the ASSC, which is now a thriving uh, scientific society that I'm presiding next year. Uh, and there, uh, this was in the wake of um, the Tucson meetings uh, that had begun a little bit earlier, 1994, and Chalmers' book was coming out at the time, The Conscious Mind, and Dennett had produced uh, Consciousness Explained in 1991. Um, and so all of a sudden, there was this huge uh, boom of interest in consciousness as a scientific problem uh, on its own, not as something that uh, we should leave to uh, philosophers. And of course, me, with my interests in implicit learning, that was, that, that was just right there, because a lot of work that you do when you try to understand the mechanisms of consciousness is trying to figure out what the difference is between conscious and unconscious processing. And so, of course, if you truly want to understand how unconscious learning is possible, you have to have 
somewhere a theory of what uh, what consciousness itself is. So you can develop an argument about how it's possible to learn without awareness. Uh, and so I got in contact uh, with all sorts of people from uh, uh, Bernie Bars and um, uh, Larry Jacoby was there and Christoph Clark and David Chalmers and all sorts of people who would become uh, some of the main actors in the, in the field uh, today and who were already quite visible at the time. Uh, so remember Phil Miracle. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, okay, uh, instantly feeling part of this um, community interested in that and pretty much like uh, this impression I've had uh, at CMU of getting in touch with uh, this um, terrific community of people doing connectionist modeling here, all of a sudden I felt, okay, this is my new home. Uh, this is, this is the, uh, the sort of stuff that I'm really interested in. And so my interests uh, from then on uh, sort of went um, beyond implicit learning per se uh, to accommodate uh, also the interests of uh, incoming PhD students. Um, so I had one person very much interested in vision, which I had never sort of been really interested in. Uh, and then another person came along much later interested in sense of agency and so on and so forth. So Axel, I want to be respectful of your time. Do you have time for one more question? Oh yeah, sure. Cool. Um, so is there some sort of study of consciousness that uh, you've sort of imagined and you'd really like to do, but you can't because it's either, you know, impractical or unethical, or you just can't find the way to make it work exactly? Do you have anything in your mind uh, that, that, that you'd want to study about consciousness like that? Um, I'm not sure exactly what you mean, or what, what sort of uh, experiment I could imagine that we should do, but... Well, you know, like there is, so uh, when you uh, uh, take something like consciousness, it's very uh, multifarious and sort of hard to pin down, and you have, you know, definitions going back to Chalmers, like the, the easy problem, uh, which would be like neural correlates, and the hard problem, which would be subjective awareness. Uh, there are clearly some aspects uh, about consciousness that are easier to ask questions about than others and so well of course everybody everybody wants to answer um to address the hard question right i mean what is the mechanism that makes it so that it feels like something for you to be you uh and such that there's nothing it feels for a computer to be a computer do you think we'll ever really get a grasp on that hard problem of subjective consciousness? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, but it's a specific take uh, on this, but I think consciousness involves phenomenal experience to be more specific. What it feels like uh, depends on uh, specific mechanisms uh, that take place in the brain. If we understand those mechanisms, then we have a theory of uh, phenomenal experience. But that, that's one take about it. Uh, other people would disagree. Uh, they would say, no, no, consciousness is everywhere in the universe. Consciousness is, um, is a mystery and we cannot understand it. Um, but my perspective on it is that I think we can understand it. And I think um, it will take uh, specific kinds of computational mechanisms. Uh, that is what we need to identify what one could call the computational correlates of consciousness. 
Well, uh, Axel, that's great. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. And you know I'm a big fan of yours. And uh, I hope we get to see each other in person again soon, ideally in Porto, over a nice glass of port. Well, yeah, I'm going to uh, Porto next week, as a matter of fact. <laughs> that's what I like to hear. Amazing. Oh, I think I'll have to miss out this time, but uh, hopefully next time, okay? All right, wonderful. Well, this was great, and um, um, yeah, keep me in the loop. Will do. Thanks, Axel. Bye, Cody. Thank you. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it, and I will see you back here next week for another episode of Cognitive Revolution. Mm-hmm.